0: Great to see you, Journey. Uh, We just saw a promo there for the Leadership Summit, but I want to give you my own promo. the Leadership Summit as well. Uh, This is a big deal for our church. As we think about the kind of church that we want to be moving into the future, we want to be a church that thinks really seriously about leadership development, because for us to impact our valley the way that we believe God is asking us to, we need more leaders and we need better leaders. And so this is what I want to ask you to do. I know how it can be when you hear about something and you just kind of look at the dates and we can just kind of dismiss it and just say that might be kind of difficult, and we never really engage the question of whether or not I should go. Would you do this for me? What I want to ask you to do is just erase the slate of whether you've made a decision about going to the Leadership Summit, and I want you to just hold out that question before the Lord and just ask Him, God, would this be an opportunity for me to be developed in my leadership? Now, when I say that, I'm not absolutely assuming that anyone that actually prays about it will go. I don't think that that's the case. But what I do believe is that it's smart for us to take opportunities to actually put those things in front of God. So if you would do that for me, I would greatly appreciate it. And I hope that God prompts your heart and I will see you at the summit in the beginning of August. Rogers Cadenhead. Does that name ring a bell for anybody? Probably not, probably not, doesn't surprise me. 2005 though, Rogers got his 15 minutes of fame. And it was surrounding the transition with the Pope. The Vatican was choosing a new Pope. And he got this great idea. He said, what if I could anticipate what the name of the new Pope was gonna be? There's some ideas out there on who might be selected. And so he put his thinking to that and he registered all the domain names that he could possibly think of of the different possibilities. When Cardinal Ratzinger was became Benedict Sixteenth. lo and behold, BenedictXVI.com was taken. He had it, and his question was, what is the Vatican willing to pay for that domain name? Well, Rogers, a Catholic himself, he said, I wasn't about to try to upset 1.1 billion Catholics worldwide, one of which is my grandmother, and I definitely don't wanna make her upset, But he said, I do want something in exchange for the domain name. Here were some of his requests. I want three days and two nights in the Vatican Hotel. Secondly, I want one of those hats. I want the Vatican to give me one of those hats. And then he said, I want complete absolution, no questions asked for the third week of March, 1987. Kind of makes you wonder what happened that third week of March, 1987. Have you ever had a third week of March, 1987? Maybe there was a a season of your life where you're just kind of wandering out in the weeds. Maybe it's just a month where you got completely off track. Maybe there was a whole season of your life where your flesh was what was driving your life. And the spirit of God, the conviction of the spirit of God was being quenched. And you were just off doing your own thing. And you found yourself on this road and it just kept getting darker and darker and darker. And your heart just kept getting harder and colder and harder and colder. You finally got to the place where it just just seemed like God was so distant. I don't even know if God is real anymore. Imagine that there was a box of tapes. That in this box of tapes was all of your life, everything in your life. Everything that you had ever done, every word that you had ever spoken, every secret thought that you had thought out there on tape. Would there be some tapes that you would really like to burn? I bet there is. I know there is for me. And that either... Has been you, maybe that is you today, or maybe that will be you someday. And if you're sitting out there today and you're thinking that will never be me, then you really need to hear this story today from the life of David. Because in this series, we've been unpacking this idea to expect the unexpected. And today, when we look at the life of David, we're gonna see an unexpected fall. The man after God's own heart has a very disastrous fall. There's two names in the Bible that will unforgettably always be linked linked to David. One of those names is Goliath and the other is Bathsheba. Now those two people couldn't be more different. Goliath, he was this ugly, arrogant thug of a giant. Bathsheba, this beautiful, gentle woman. But the place where their lives overlapped is that each of them brought an incredible test to David. And one of those tests against Goliath, we talked about earlier, David passed with flying colors, obviously, one of, arguably one of his biggest victories in his life. But today we're gonna look at a test with Bathsheba, arguably one of the greatest defeats in David's life. When we first met David, If there was one word that I would use to describe him, it would be the word humble. David was this guy at every corner. It just seemed like he was willing to get low. He was low and God was high. He was low when he knelt down before Samuel and Samuel anointed his head as just a boy, the next king of Israel. He was low when he knelt in the valley of Elah and he grabbed those five smooth stones, which he was going to take at Goliath. He was low when he grabbed the garment of Saul and he cut off just a portion of it because he could have taken Saul's life who was trying to take his life, but he was low, he was humble before even Saul and before others. He was very, very low, but he was very, very strong. Never more strong than he was at that time in his life. And now, decades later, we're going to see that almost the exact opposite is true. David is high. He is high and mighty in life. But he's at a place where he's also never been more weak. There's three things that we're going to learn from this story of David that we're going to learn about sin. The first is that the deception of sin. The second is the destruction of sin. And the third is the destroyer of sin. When this story in the life of David starts out, again, David is at the top of his game. He's at the highest place in his life. He's at the highest position in the kingdom. And he's at the highest place in the palace, looking out over the balcony. But here's what we know as this story starts. The text tells us that David shouldn't have even been there. It says, in the time when kings go off to war. You see, it was springtime. And that's when military campaigns would begin. But David isn't out on his military campaign. He's delegated that to other people. Instead, he's at home. He's at home with time on his hands and he's got lust in his heart. It's a time for war and it's springtime and it's a time for love in David's mind. So as he's walking out on the edge of the palace, the text tells us that he looks over the edge and he sees a beautiful Woman bathing. Now it starts out as just a simple look, but then this look turns into a leer, and this leer turns into lust. This seed of sin, this thought in the heart of David, this simple little seed is planted in the heart of David. He plants it and he waters it, he fertilizes it, and it starts to grow. The next step, he takes a messenger and he sends them to find out who is this woman that I find so beautiful. Now the messenger comes back to David, giving him an update on who she is. And he says this, this is Bathsheba, but that's not the only information he gives. He says, this is the daughter of Eliam. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see what the messenger does? He's weaving in a warning to David, not just information. He's saying, David, don't do this. Don't do this. David, don't just see her as an object. See her for who she is. She's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. But this messenger also tells the name of of her father and her husband. Why would you give the name unless this was someone that David would know? These were men that David knew. These were two of what the Bible calls David's mighty men. These were the men that accompanied him most closely in his military campaigns. They were the one that stood by him against Saul. They risked everything, risked their life for David. They loved him, they were loyal to him. The messenger is saying, David, this is not the time for a hookup. These are men that you have loved, that have been loyal to you. David, don't do this. But David does do it. That seed that was planted in his heart, David chooses to feed that seed. He started down this dark road. And when the messenger comes, he doesn't turn around. He actually picks up speed. In the next two verses, it says this of David. He sends for her, he sleeps with her, and he finds out that she's pregnant. Now you would think maybe that this would be enough to shake David David, this is not who you are. This is not who you want to be. But David's not humble like he used to be. The light shining into his life. He wants to stay on this road of darkness. And because he wants to stay on this road of darkness, he decides what I need to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cover this up. So he sends word to Joab, his military commander, and he says, what I want you to do is I want you to send home Uriah the Hittite. Here's his plan. I need Uriah to get home and get home fast. I need him to sleep with his wife so that everyone will assume that this baby belongs to him. So he tells Joab, send him home and just tell him that I want an update from the war. So David sends Uriah home. Uriah gives him an update. David thanks him for his update And then he says, Uriah, now what I want you to do is I want you to go home and I want you to wash your feet. A euphemism for sex. He was telling Uriah, go home and sleep with your wife. So he gives Uriah a bottle of his best Merlot, rubs his back as he's walking out of the pallet, pats him on the back and sends him on his way. And as Uriah leaves the palace, Inside David, he's thinking, dodged a bullet there. Everything's taken care of now. Except Uriah doesn't go home. David finds out that Uriah went outside the palace and he slept on the porch of the palace. David's like, what in the world? Uriah, get in here. What is going on? Why did you not go home to be with your wife? And Uriah says, how could I do such a thing? My men and my commanders, they're out in the field, sleeping in the open. How can I go home and sleep with my wife when they're out there defending and protecting Israel? You see this contrast starts to emerge between Uriah and David. Uriah is this man of integrity and honor. And David knows what's going on inside of his heart. You know how it is sometimes when you just see that honor honor in someone, that integrity in someone, and it just shows you inside who you really are and it just makes you want to be a better person, to be a better man, to be a better woman, better husband. Not David. The contrast is emerging, but David continues to push back the darkness. He continues to push back the light with the darkness. And so he's gotta up his game. I've got this, this has got to work. I've I've got to get Uriah home with his wife. So he says, Uriah, stay one more day. Stay here in Jerusalem one more day. So David's not gonna take any chances this time. He's gonna make sure, make sure that Uriah drinks the bottle of Merlot. So he invites him into the palace and David gets Uriah drunk. Sends him home and just says, now everything will be accomplished. Uriah doesn't go home. Could the contrast be any greater? A drunk Uriah has more integrity than a sober David. But this picture of integrity does nothing to David's heart. He continues to go down the same road and there's no sign of turning. And we look at this and we think, this is not the David that we knew. This is not the David that we loved. So here's his plan. He says, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send word to Joab and I'm gonna send Uriah into the fiercest part of the battle on the front lines and at just the right time I'm gonna have them pull back from him so he will be completely exposed and he will die at the hand of the Ammonite's sword. David continues down this dark, dark, dark road. His plan works. He sends word to Joab, sends Uriah in. Uriah dies in battle. Word comes back to David. Uriah has died. And then David sends for Bathsheba, invites him to become one of his many wives. It's the end of the story in chapter 11. Bathsheba then bears him a son. There's a word that this story uses over and over, and commentators say you've got to understand why this is so important, and it's just a simple word. seems like an innocent word. It's the word sent. Over and over in this text, David sends. He sent someone to inquire about the woman. He sent messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. He sent word to Joab. He sent for Josiah, Uriah, to come home. He sent a letter to Joab. He sent Uriah back to the battlefield. And finally, he sends for Bathsheba to become his wife. You see what happened with David? This was a man that started out as someone who his first move, his lead foot was to serve. He served people. Now he's just sending people. His heart for others has become a heart for himself. He's using his power and authority at the expense of others. He's gotten to that place where everyone else's wish is his command, and it's a dark road for David. One year after this story starts, he's born a son. This whole story, in chapter 11, God is never even mentioned. David, who couldn't take his eyes off of God and lots of these other stories that we've looked at, God is not even mentioned in this story. But in the last words of chapter 11, God will remain silent no more." Second Samuel 11 verse 27 says this, "But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God is not silent anymore. And now in the final and decisive word of the used, word, use of the word "send" in this story, God does some sending of his own. Verse one of chapter 12 says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now here's where this story, friends, takes a radical turn for the better. Nathan goes to David. He's his pastor, the prophet Nathan. But he goes to David. He doesn't just confront him with his sin. He tells David a sermon. He tells David a story. Now, David doesn't know that this is a sermon because there's no pulpit, there's no pews, there's no Bible verses. God isn't even mentioned in this story. As far as David knows, this story that Nathan is telling him is about something that's happening out there in the kingdom. Maybe Nathan needs some help deciding on what to do with this situation. But think about this preaching assignment that Nathan was given. Not a very enviable preaching assignment. You've gotta go and confront the king on something dark in his life. And every time this darkness comes out, people find themselves dead. Nathan had to be quaking as he went, but Nathan goes. But I love what Nathan did. Nathan didn't storm up to David, get all up in his grill and start pounding him on the chest and telling him what he did wrong. He simply told a story told a very simple story about a rich man, a poor man, and one tiny little sheep. Now, as he starts to tell this story, David instantly connects with it, because he was a shepherd. He knows what it's like to take care of you. Before he was shepherding people, he was shepherding sheep. And he understands poverty. He knows what it was like to be the youngest son of a family that couldn't afford to hire their own shepherd, so he was the shepherd for the family. As Nathan tells this story, he tells the story about this poor shepherd that only had one sheep, and he loved this sheep. He would take care of it, the sheep would always be in his lap. This sheep would eat from his plate. It says the sheep was like one of his children. now a traveler came to this town, And there's the rich man who had lots of sheep. The hills were covered with his sheep. But when the traveler comes, the rich man wants to show hospitality to this traveler. But instead of taking one of his own sheep, he takes the poor man's sheep. And he slaughters this sheep and he uses it for the dinner. David hears this story and he just loses it. His blood starts to boil. The veins in his neck starts to pop out. He's grabbing, clutching the side of his throne, white knuckled. And here's what David proclaims must happen to this man. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David pronounces judgment on this man. And now Nathan, calmly, but with resolve, starts to hold the mirror up to David. And with that mirror in front of him, he looks at David and he says, David, you are the man. You're the man. Something happened in David Something turned in David. Somehow the light switch was finally turned on. He was able to see what God had been trying to do all along. He saw the heart of God. He saw the heart of God's justice. The heart of God's righteousness. And David just felt naked and exposed before God. He saw the reality of his sin. And he finally got to the place where he understood, I am that man. I'm the one that deserves God's wrath. I'm the one that deserves death. Here's what's interesting. Nathan never condemns David in this story. Ironically, God never condemns David in this story. David is the one that condemns David. We know from this story God is displeased with what David has done, but there's something that God wants more than just obedience from David. He wants David's heart. He wants David to turn back to him and follow me. God takes our sin seriously. He took David's sin seriously, but we've got to understand he also takes it personally. It's a personal thing with him and David and with him and us. I wanna read to you the Lord's response to David. I'm just gonna read it to you and I want you to just evaluate for yourself. Is what the Lord says to David here, is this a God who hates David or is this a God that was hurt by David? Let me just read it and you be the judge. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I don't know, but for my money, that sounds like someone that's hurt. God takes our sin personally. Here's David's response. It says, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David sees it. God's taking this personally. I've sinned against him. But here's what you've got to hear, friends. Here's where the picture of God's grace rushes to David as he's finally made the decision to turn back to God. His grace rushes at David. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. What a picture of grace. What a, David knew, David condemned himself. This man surely deserves to die. Three things that we're gonna learn from this story about sin And the first one is the deception of sin. Here's what I think is curious to me. Where did David take that first step down this dark road? Where was that fork in the road? The Bible never tells us. And I bet you if we even tried to ask David, David wouldn't even know when it took place. But he found himself on a dark road. The Lord's timing is always interesting to me. While I was preparing this sermon, I got ran into and got reconnected with a close friend of mine, a ministry friend, that several years ago lost his ministry because of an adulterous affair. We were catching up and talking, and in the back of my mind, I thought, there's a question that he asked me that I hope he doesn't ask me. Sure enough, toward the end of our conversation, he says, so what are you preaching on this weekend? I said, I'm talking about David and Bathsheba. He kind of Smiled a little bit and he said, I've thought a lot about that story. There's something that he said that I'm never gonna forget. He said, so many people, in light of what happened in my life, they have this belief that somehow I walked up to the edge of a 5,000 foot cliff and just decided one day that I'm gonna jump off to my destruction. He says, Bob, that is not how it happens. Yes, I made that descent. He said, but I made that descent one Inch at a time, one compromising decision at a time, one little justification at a time, one small deceit at a time, one little hidden thing that I didn't bring into the light. And the next thing I knew, I found myself in a place of destruction. We don't know where the fork in the road is but we know when we're on the dark road. And what we need to hear is it's never too late to turn around. When I think about the dark roads that I've been on, I don't remember where it started. Most of the time when I'm lost in life, lost driving, I don't even know that I'm lost until my companion and co-pilot says, do you have any idea where you're going? Usually I don't. But I don't remember, I don't know where I took the wrong turn. Sin is deceptive. And here's the thing we've got to understand as well. David had the spirit of God in his life. When we read those stories of his anointing, it says that God's power rushed over him. This spirit that would convict and say, turn around, David, turn around. That spirit was on him. He was anointed with power. But somewhere along the way, he decided that I'm going to quench that. When the spirit is tapping me on the shoulder, I'm just gonna say, no, I'm gonna do my own thing. It's deceptive. It draws us in. The enemy is smart in how he does that. But here's what's true. When we get on that dark road, that dark road of sin, it will always take us further than we wanna go. It will always keep us longer than we wanna stay. And it will always cost us more than we were willing to pay. Sin is deceptive, but also sin is destructive. I mentioned this earlier about David and that seed of sin in his life. I want you to think about this little acorn here. I want you to think about the incredible potential of this acorn, just a small little seed, but in the right environment, this seed gets planted this seed gets watered, the seeds get fertilized, something big can start to grow from this. A massive tree can grow from this with incredible deep roots that penetrate the earth. And when that tree grows up, it has the capacity to begin to spread seeds out from it. This tiny little acorn has the potential in it to cover the entire planet with trees. We've got to deal with the seeds in our life when they are just seeds. That's what David would want you to know. That's what David would say to you is, don't even let those little thoughts grab a hold of your mind. Because for him, it was just walking on the edge of the palace. He saw something. There was a thought in his mind that he needed to nip in the bud right then. But he didn't. You've probably seen how this works out in life. Those little thoughts become words. We start to talk about these things. These words become actions. We start to take action on things. These actions become habits, a way that we're starting to live our life. These habits start to shape our character. And our character ultimately determines our destiny, where we're at on that road. What David would say is you gotta stop it. You gotta stop it at the seed. You gotta stop it at the, at the thought. And here's how David said it in Psalm 139. David knew this. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See, David is just saying, God, if there's something in me, I wanna know it, point it out, show it to me. And then he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. David's saying, I wanna be on, not the dark road, I wanna be on your road. So what David would say, when you see these seeds, these thoughts, he would say, take that seed and you crush it. You crush it, you deal with it, you take away any potential of that seed to take root in your heart in your life. The last thing that we need to learn from this story We've learned that sin can be deceitful, it can be destructive, but we've gotta hear about the destroyer of sin. This story, in my mind, is a relentless story about God's grace. It just seems like every step of the way, God is doing something to try to get David to turn around, get off of this dark road. He sends this messenger to David that just says, David, don't do this. She's someone's wife, she's someone's daughter. She is a person. See her, David. Don't do this. And then he sends Uriah, this picture of love and loyalty to David. And even that picture of love and loyalty that I imagine that as David looked at him, he said, I used to be that guy. And God is saying, turn, turn from him. Turn from your sin. And then there's the shrewdness of Nathan. Nathan comes to him and he doesn't pound him in the chest He just tells him a story that helps David to see the magnitude of his sin before God. And then the ultimate outpouring of grace in this story is God's response when David finally stops running away and he turns back toward God and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. It says that God's grace was poured out. David, you're not going to die. You are are forgiven. I don't know where everybody's at in this room, but I know enough about my own life that it's pretty easy for us to be on some dark roads. David would want to say to you, it is never too late to turn around. It is never too late to respond to God's grace in your life. There's just a simple response to him, a humble response And there's a whole psalm written. I wish we had time to unpack so much of it. But Psalm 51 is a psalm that David penned after his encounter with Nathan. And he talks about the things that were going on in him. And how he turned from that dark road and turned back to God. And there's one piece of it that I want you to hear. Because this is what I think is the, the nugget of what David would want to say to you. Here's David's response. This is what it looked like for him internally when he finally turned around. Psalm 51, starting in verse 16. He says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. What David's saying there is, God, turning around, it's not about religious activity. If it was about going to church and reading my Bible and doing religious activity, I would do that. But God, you and I both know that's not what you want. Verse 17, David says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, O God, will not despise. It's not about doing things to receive God's grace. It's about simply humbling ourselves, allowing ourselves to be bent, allowing ourselves to be broken. Before God, I want a picture to stick in your mind when you leave here today. This is a simple little kid's toy. It's a glow stick. And if this glow stick stays as it is stiff, stiff necked, unyielding, unbending, it will stay dark inside, it will stay on a dark road. But there's something amazing about a glow stick. If you take a glow stick and you bend it and you break it and you continue to bend and you continue to break, what happens? It starts to light up inside because it's bent, it's broken and it's shaken. And light starts to come in to the glow stick. Friends, we ourselves are like a glow stick. It's when we come to that humble place before God, when we're willing to be bent, we're willing to be broken before Him, and to respond to His grace, that the light of His life, the light of His truth starts to penetrate us, and take us off of those dark, dark roads. A thousand years after King David after King David stood before Nathan there was a time when another king stood before Pilate and there's some eerie similarities as David stood before Nathan David said to him Nathan said to David you are the man but as Jesus stood before Pilate At the end of John chapter 19, the text says this, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, 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 and crucify they did. That first story ended with a guilty man going free. In the second story, in the story of Jesus, an innocent man died. Why? Because God takes our sin personally. God takes our sin personally. So personally that he's willing to say, I will take your sin upon myself. I will take the penalty for your sin. That's what the cross is all about. And here in just a few minutes, we're gonna take communion together. It's that reminder that Jesus gave us because he never wanted us to forget that it's that humble response to his grace that brings the light of his truth into our life. He wanted to remind us over and over and over and over again, that he is willing to take our sin personally. And here in just a minute, we're gonna come forward to receive communion together. And we do that here in our church if you just wanna come up the right side of the aisle and go back down the other side. We take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and we dip it in the wine or the wine as a reminder that it's not about some religious activity that we do, that causes God to forgive us of our sins. It's that broken body and shed blood of Jesus. He lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserved to die. And Jesus wants us to remember together. And I want you to do something else as we take communion It's a little bit different, but I'm a little bit different. When you come up here to communion, you're gonna see that there's some glow sticks right beside the element, I want you to grab one of those glow sticks. As you go back to your seat, I want you to just take that glow stick and I want you to start to bend it and I want you to start to break it. And I want you to just watch that, even as you sing, as a reminder, it's being bent and broken and contrite before God, just saying, God, I need your help. I'm not gonna get off this dark road by myself. I need your help. And I just want you to see that I want you to see the light begin to come from the inside out. That's what God wants to do with us as we acknowledge our sin to Him and before others. Let's celebrate together. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.